Hello, and welcome to a new episode of From the Honeycomb, a podcast that creates a spark of positive energy. Here we discuss all things architecture and design, to travel, exploring Vastu Shastra with a modern approach, and I connect with other like-minded women to share their story. I am your host, Katerina Burenova, and welcome to From the Honeycomb. I am joined today by Caitlin Rosier, licensed architect and founder of Mentor Dino, a mentoring, coaching, and training program dedicated to help those in the architectural industry. By providing accessible resources, Caitlin has created a platform to help you thrive, no matter what stage of, of your career you are in. Caitlin, welcome to From the Honeycomb. Thank you so much. I should have you introduce me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'd be happy to. I think what you're doing is absolutely incredible. So any introduction I can help with. Definitely. I'll just cart you around the country with me. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Make a good team. Yeah. So as you know, we begin every episode by sharing something that we are grateful for in the present moment. So Caitlin, what are you grateful for? I am grateful for... My friends and family that have supported me through starting this endeavor, mm-hmm. especially my husband, because he's been a huge support system. As you know, working and doing things on the side, it does take time out of my personal life and doing things all the time. I'm always like thinking of ideas, working on things and any little type of moment I have. So he's been extremely supportive that I have to give him a lot of credit for always giving me the best, pushing me to do better, showcasing I'm doing the right thing. Because I know I have an imposter syndrome. So it took me three years just to like get this thing going that I've been thinking about. And so he's always the biggest cheerleader for me and cheering me on through uh, thick and thin. So that is what I'm thankful for. (laughs) It's incredible to hear because I think in the architecture industry, so many people don't realize how important it is to have a support network, especially with your partner, your spouse, and it's just, you have to have a supportive partner and able to be able to thrive in in this very rigorous program. Yeah. Internal to architecture and design and external. They're always there for you. uh, No matter what, they're there in the good days and the bad. So they can definitely help you through it. Oh, that's great. So Caitlin, share with us your architecture journey and then what's led you to starting your own mentoring program. Sure. Where do you want me to begin? (laughs) It can be from the first moment you wanted to be an architect to when you applied to school, whatever. Where was that seed planted that you're like, I want to be an architect? So I probably put the seed back in middle school. Okay. Once you had technology courses, woodworking, craftsmen, that's when I started learning AutoCAD software and actually hand drafting and understanding line weights. I enjoyed art and calligraphy. I was the person always growing up and doing model building. And I like playing with like those really old blocks like my grandparents would have. But I like the art side. I actually drew cartoons as a kid and made a whole like novel out of cartoons. So it's been fun to go full circle and seeing discovering that architecture exists made it very interesting. So I focused and did a lot of drafting courses in high school. I actually learned Revit back in high school. Wow. So going for job interviews and it's like, oh, yeah, I have over 16 years of experience with Revit. And they're like, what? But you're how old? I'm like, oh, I learned it here. And you have to do the whole story. 
but it started all back then and just seeing how things go. I'm one to buy the Sims and then I would just do the cheat codes so I could just build whatever houses I want. And I didn't care what the people did. <laughs> yeah. So that's how it started. I went to Kent State University for my undergrad and my master's. Picking a school was a bit challenging. My parents didn't know anything about architecture and neither did any staff at the high school were to help me. And at the time, my mom was going through cancer. So I also wanted a good driving radius that I could get home if anything happened with the family. But the closest university to Pittsburgh is CMU that's accredited. And that just was way out of our budget. So Kent was a great kind of middle ground, got some scholarships to go there. And was even a tour guide for the campus throughout my undergrad and master's to help kind of fund architecture school and get me out. And I always tried to grab the architects and interior designers because the other tour guides were like, I have no idea what you guys do. You're just in this building and the lights on all the time. And so I would always try to grab them so I could help them through the process that I struggled with to just know what I was getting into because not everybody understands what studio and architecture world get, is going to be until they start living it. So hopefully I didn't scare too many of them off and they actually came to study architecture. But after graduation, I came back to Pittsburgh, so came back home. At that time, it was still remnants of the 2008 recession. So there weren't too many jobs. You're cold calling, trying to find something, anything. A lot of my colleagues took months after graduation to find anything. So I was able to find a local firm. It was a good fit because a lot of their projects are local. I could be on a construction site. And I had some very hard lessons learned that I'm sure we can get into later <laughs> with my career early on, which what drove me into starting to blog, because I actually started blogging back in 2017 and kind of on and off blogging and then Mentor Dino starting more recently to do more with it. But left there, I was extremely burnt out by the time I left that firm, exhausted, and a recruiter reached out to me to try out a design build firm. And it was also a huge amount of money. And so I was like, okay, I have a house I had just bought. Like I have expenses. I'm burnt out. It'd be great to have a break and try it out and got there. And I absolutely hated it. Oh, it no. just wasn't a good fit. I tried talking to people on like, what do I do? And I've had, I had more senior professionals give me advice to stick it out a year, let them know, like try it. And I had other people that were like, no, just leave. If it's not the right fit, get out of there. So it was definitely a mix generationally on the advice you get, depending on your situation. But I was only there like, I think five months, not too long. And I joined Smith Group in February of 2020. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I was in the office for a month and I was actually in their Detroit office whenever everything shut down because I was there for a client visit. And so it was just like, okay. And then immediately be home and working from home for all of 2020 and getting into 2022. And I'm still there. I learned a lot when I was in that in-between company. I at least got out of burnout, but I had a career coach at the time that was super helpful, giving me tips and homework assignments that ended up getting me the job at Smith Group. So I really value when you leave a job that you're transitioning to something to grow yourself and you learn about yourself before moving on to the next one. So I learned that the hard way <laughs> going through the process. I don't like hopping around. So been at Smith Group since early 2020 and got married in 2022. And after the wedding, I started 
working on Mentor Dino again. I was actually under Mentor Architect blogging, mm-hmm. but I'm sure as a small business owner, you know there's a lot of restrictions on what kind of company name you can use. Yes. So since I'm not providing architectural services and designing buildings under this name, I could not use the word architect for the state of Pennsylvania. So I had to scramble to find a new name and figure it out. So Mentor Dino came to flourish in before the official launch that I was doing a bunch of things, but it's an acronym and it stands for Mentoring Designers Innovating New Opportunities. So all stretches just to help people get through the struggles of architecture, define their own paths, share stories, and provide training courses is kind of the other side that I've been wanting to add to blogging for three years now, and I finally was able to do it. So Mentor Dino launched, I'm trying to remember when the actual launch of the name was, I think it was in March, applied for the LLC in January and the government's behind. So it took a while. So mm-hmm. I got to relook up when my actual birthday is to when mm-hmm. I announced it. But I'd been working on it since the end of 2022 after I was done planning a wedding. So it's been a whirlwind to get to where we are today. So architect by day, 40 hours a week, and then get home, hang out with the family, walk the dogs, and see what I can get done in a couple hours in the evening. Wow. I think what you provide is so valuable when it comes to the stories you share, the blog posts, the training programs, because it made me think as you were talking and describing about like, you you go, go through architecture school, and then you're in the career field. But There's really no extra help. Like, yes, you may have some colleagues who help you, but like you mentioned, there's so many different generational advice you'll get. And Mm -hmm. like my previous experience was coming from a boss who was 82 years old. And then I'm 31, so there's a 50-year gap. Yeah. And so some of the advice I would get and, you know, it just – it didn't exactly match with what I've been studying and what I, what I was taught. So I think what you provide is really good. And you brought up the point of transitioning, which I know you really do focus also on helping architects or architectural candidates or ARE candidates, I should say, I know I can't use the word architecture, really help them with transitions because transitioning in the field of architecture definitely provides a lot of challenges. And career transitions in general are the Mm -hmm. hardest part of anybody's career. No matter if you're an architect, engineer, lawyer, businessman, that's the hardest time because you are adjusting to what you were doing, to what you need to do. And people struggle to let go of certain things or feel like they have knowledge and are afraid to ask questions because they're at a more senior level if you move up the ranks. But a lot of the courses and conversations I'm having is dealing with that gap between transitioning from education to the real world. And there is a big gap. Don't learn everything in architecture school or else we'd be in school for 15 years. We learn a lot in the field and education is also changing. So they're giving you more opportunities to minor in other disciplines or do coding, do something else to then brings another side to architecture, which I think is really exciting, seeing the more recent graduates and doing some analysis on current architecture programs. But they're there to teach you problem solving and thinking outside the box and giving you almost a high level on what you're going to deal with in the field. And that education system changes a bit over time. Studio is still the main course work that your 82-year-old boss would have <laughs> taken, but he learned drafting standards then. Yeah. 
And a lot of students now don't hand draft. And so they don't understand line weights. So then when they get criticized in the office and said, these line weights don't make any sense, they weren't taught it. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what resources to go to. And leadership, you're not taught how to teach. Like, I wish we had more time in architecture school. I would have taken like an education course, a marketing course. I was a business minor, which helps me a little bit with starting a business. But there's so many other things that we do on a day-to-day basis. Psychology would have been a great mm-hmm. one. Dealing with <laughs> users that can't read floor plans. They spatially can't understand it. They've got questions. They're not used to construction and they can be scary, especially residential. Like You have to walk them through a little bit more. If you're dealing with a bigger institution, facilities can help with that, but you're still dealing with users that don't understand the design process. So Education and psychology would have been a great help in it in school to balance out with architecture education. So there's a gap, but it's interesting to see the next generation come out and see what other courses they choose mm-hmm. along the way. But we also have to train our current staff to how to train. So it's important. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm curious to know what you're seeing as, you know, because I know in my architecture program, we still hand drafted. So I started architecture school 2010, graduated 2015. We still hand drafted our first year. By the time I was a third or fourth year, they completely took hand drafting away. It was very interesting to see the up and coming classes not hand drafting. And you, like you Mm -hmm. said, they don't know line weights. Because, and I kind of struggled with that too sometimes is I work in AutoCAD. So my line weights are colors. I know like Mm -hmm. red is dark, red is thick and blue is light, you know, so you start to think in color and I think that's, that's very different. And so, yeah, whereas I'm in Revit and I just, I know the thicker line weights, I know how to override them to get it to Mm -hmm. what it needs to be. Mm -hmm. But when I see colors, I'm, I just think cyan's usually a wall. (laughs) <laughs> and that's all I got. But how it prints, I can't remember what all the codes are because I'm not in it as often. Mm-hmm. But no. It, yeah. <laughs> that's so true. And and even going between jobs and between firms and when you learn different firms line weights, like I remember transitioning from one job to another, like, for example, the red line at one firm was super dark at one firm was super light. And it's like changing, and that goes back to the transition and, and learning. You're not only transitioning, you know, from one job to another, but you know, design standards, office standards, and every office I've worked at has reinvented the wheel with standards of drawings. It's all ever so slightly different. Mm -hmm. So then you have to learn it. They generally have like wall types, typically your first wall types, a regular stud with drywall on either side. But if you're in residential, that changes. Or if you do residential and commercial, then how are they labeled doing it that way? So I remember I always have to print it out Or if I have somebody from a previous office, I remember when I was at the design build company, I was with another person from my prior firm and I felt like we were having another conversation in a different language because I'm like, which one's P1? Which one's P3? (laughs) And she's telling me other letters and the other guys in the office are like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I'm like, it's just walls. I'm trying to learn. Yeah, it's it's learning another language for sure when it comes to the different different softwares. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was your ARE experience as well and what that was like for you. Yeah, so when I interned, so I didn't get my first internship till I had an undergrad degree. That's how just crazy the economy was. And so luckily enough, I 
at an internship with a five person office where I was number five. And I also interned with Perkins Eastman, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And so I got to get some feedback from both of the companies. All of them said, get started right away. So coming out of my master's, I knew, okay, let me get adjusted to the office. But then I need to figure out what resources do they have? What do I need to get? I need to figure out a plan to just stay on track while I was in study mode. Because if I waited too long, I wouldn't feel like studying. So that was always the advice I got. But it was interesting, the conversations. There were people at the large firm that were more senior and not licensed, and they wouldn't talk about it. So there were no conversations on like how you're doing in the ARE. So it became very isolating. In the small firm I was in when I got out of school and was actually studying, it was a lot more open in conversations. There was a lot more younger people in the office, so we could have conversations on what are you working on, what's happening over here. But there are definitely ones that some of us were going forward and taking the AREs. It kind of put pressure on people that wanted to pause and take their time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody has their own journey. But it added that pressure that I didn't really like that like competition I had a small study group for the first test, but then life happens, like somebody pushes off their exam an extra month. So then they're not, I don't want to wait a month for them to get their test done to start the next and everybody has different orders. So there are complications with study groups and partners, but more accountability buddies are better. So even if you're not studying for the same exam, but having somebody to talk to is helpful. But I was definitely afraid of failing. There's some stories I've shared. One of them is a good friend of mine, and she talks about like she failed two exams and she thought about leaving architecture. She's like, oh, my God, I'm not a good architect. Like, did I even get in the right industry? And she failed twice. And I failed two exams. And I can understand her feeling because I remember crying after one of my fails. It was hard and I hated it. Like, it just wasn't I was so upset. And of course, you. I took 4.0. So I had like a week where I wouldn't know either way. And I loved that week because there's nothing you could do study-wise. You have no idea the answer. So you're like, I don't know. It's fine. That was always my break time too. So I didn't study during that week. So it was nice. But then everybody knew when you took your test and they would ask you about it. The other one I failed, I knew I failed. There was the drafting part of the exam. Mm-hmm. And it was the site exam and I graded the wrong direction because all the practice exams graded from one corner to the other. And my test was the opposite. And I f- found that out halfway through and had to like delete everything. And you do all these circles to make sure you got the right slope. And I didn't have enough time to check all my circles. So that one I knew I failed. Kind of thankfully, I also failed the multiple choice because I would have been really annoyed if it was just the drawing part because I found the drawing part really easy. It was a game you had to play and play their game. It's not what we actually do Mm -hmm. in real world, but I could play the game. And I also was near the time when they started 5.0. And so I actually put a deadline that I want to be done before Mm 5.0. And I was close. I took one exam after 5.0 launched, but it was definitely hard. And I know even my last exam, somebody else was studying and they sat behind me and she found out she passed and she was done. And I knew I had my last exam and I didn't want to open the email. I'm like, I don't want to know because she's celebrating so much and I'm so happy for her. And if I failed, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. So it was hard. And so we didn't share as much. But once you were lic- licensed, you could celebrate it, which is great. But that was my perception of the exams. And I passed really young. So I actually passed before my NCARB hours were done. Wow. And so it was just getting hours done after that. 
and just waiting. So it was fun. And but I'm so glad I got done out of the way early. Because at that time, you're just getting delegated work for the most part. I was a little different of a situation where I was almost being a PM at the same time as studying for my ARES. But when you're more senior, you start being a project architect, moving into those roles. You not only have to do your own tasks, but you have to figure out everybody else's stuff and be able to teach them. So it can be harder and more draining to then study at night. Or sometimes I'm making to-do lists for people in the evenings and just word vomiting in one note so I can be organized and be ready in the morning to go through it with them. So I don't know how I would have done it back then. But the ARE stories I run on my blog actually started, I got the idea, I ran a panel discussion for the Pittsburgh Detroit office of Smith Group. And originally I was like, you know, I should ask people their story and make like a calculator. So then people can go in and say, okay, I need this much time to study and get this done. And I could put in what resources and make it all intelligent. And after I ran that panel discussion, I realized how different everybody's stories are. I had three people on my panel and they were all extremely different than even me in getting through the exams. So at that point, I was like, I should just tell stories. And then it's been just eye opening to read stories and it's almost PTSD to read them. <laughs> I've, I've cried reading through some of them because like I said, I've, hurt just take failing two exams and there's a lot of people that fail over 10 mm -hmm. and it's you know that one <laughs> yeah I know that one you know my story <laughs> yeah. it's it's hard to watch and then it's like mm -hmm. okay and then okay their birthday comes up after this and this happens I'm like oh my god they found that out right before their birthday and so like I feel bad so it's like emotionally draining sometimes to read them. But then you also get the highlight stories. I think the shortest ARE story, they got all their exams done in a week. Wow. But they more had experience and then mm. took them mm -hmm. and then just plow through. So everybody has their own structure. So I hope with the stories that people don't feel afraid like I was mm -hmm. going through to talk about it and be okay with failure. When you go for a job site interview for a project Nobody's asking you how many tests did you fail. You just say, I'm a licensed architect and I have 10 years of experience. Doesn't matter if I got my license at year three or year 10. Doesn't matter. Nobody asks. You don't put it anywhere. You don't even put it on your resume. So it's just, that's the statement. And so just let it be and get the support system you need to get through it. And everybody does it differently. Everybody has, are there general themes on resources that are better than others? But I know I grabbed anything and everything, anything mm -hmm. free, any flashcards, audio, anything I could get my hands on, I grabbed. So yeah, it's been nice. And everybody has a different tone to their advice too, which is always great. I try to pull out a quote mm -hmm. from their open response answers, just so it gives some more backer to what they talked about and really highlight if people don't want to read through the whole thing they can see the highlighted quote and jump to the exam order if they want and understand that. Some people go into great detail. Some people stay high level. Mm -hmm. But it's been fun to share those stories just to kind of let other people know what's going on to help that transition. So getting back to always helping people through transitions in their life. No, for sure. And I think it's so important highlighting everybody's ARE stories because what kept me sane during my exam period was also going to NCARB's website and in the, com what is it, the community group? Yeah. Something yeah, like the community, that. Community. I think there was a forum whenever I was Something doing like 4.0. Yeah. And what made me feel better is hearing that other people failed. 
Mm-hmm. Because then it felt like it's okay, it's normal. There were I had a few I had one other accountability buddy. I mean, my husband kept me accountable, but I did have an accountability buddy and she and I were always like making sure we're both doing the exam studying. We kind of would be like, "Hey, how did it go?" You know, just you have that buddy to help go through that with you because it is a process. It's an incredible process and there's yeah, I, even I had moments of giving up. And so and I completely just lost my train of thought. Saying, <laughs> um, just uh, like it, it's, it's that PTSD too that you mentioned is like I just was thinking about the exams again and just yeah. how hard it and was. And you're like, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing that just on a side note, when I was putting together my ARE story for you, it was incredible to think that some of the exams I don't even remember taking. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that once you look back on it and like what you just said a few minutes ago is nobody asks you how many times you failed or when you failed. And I think that's an important thing that anybody going through the exams or about to take their AREs, if you fail, it's okay. It's going to happen. It's happened. And oh, I was talking about the NCARB community forum. It felt so good to know that there were other people who were struggling with this exams. And it just wasn't me because it can also be, I think, a lonely process. You know, at the firm that I was at where there were four of us, two were licensed. It was me and a gentleman who's in his mid-40s now. And like like you also brought up at the beginning of the episode, life happens when you're studying for these exams. And life did happen. You know, he had kids. He had some family things come up. And it does. It, it kind of delays your exams. And I think what you also said about getting it done early before your responsibilities increase at work Mm -hmm. is a huge factor in helping you. Yeah. Like I got my dog, I think when I had one exam left and that was hard having a puppy (laughs) because I just wanted to play with the puppy. Right. I don't know how people study when they have young kids at home. Thankfully, NCARB got rid of their rolling clock. So that Mm -hmm. should really help people that life happens. Mm -hmm. You never know what you have to deal with and you sometimes have to put your life first and put off the exams, but at least you wouldn't lose the exams you already passed anymore if you do have to take a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of my concerns was once I passed is what happens if something happened? You know, life happens. Exactly. Life happens. Yeah. You never know. And I think NCARB is doing a lot more to help people with understanding that. Yeah, life happens. Exactly. Yeah. And so I want to talk more about your mentoring program too, because I think I think it's really great. It's very valuable. Where do you see people coming to you with questions as far as once they're maybe later in their career? So later in the career, it's more questions about specializing, finding the right fit. There's a lot of questions on struggles with teaching and training because, again, every generation has gone through an architecture school program, but they learn different things. And so a lot like a young professional, I say, you don't know what you don't know. And that's the biggest learning curve that happens to leaders as well. They don't know what the young professional doesn't know. So we throw out acronyms and don't bat an eye. But then the young professional has to have that trust with you to be able to ask the question on what you mean and just backing up. So a lot of the senior people, I'm getting asked to teach them how to coach people and how to train. They're struggling with younger staff, especially if they do complicated projects, to get them up to speed. And sometimes if it's smaller projects that are very fast, you need to know what you're doing, and there's not as much time to teach, and there's high level of failure that can happen. I hate using the word failure because we'll always mess up something. There's no perfect Mm -hmm. drawing set, but they struggle with trying to just get them up to speed as fast as they can. 
so they can hit the ground running, whether that's technical training or how to actually operate in an office. And so that's more of the questions I'm getting. And more that I see is people don't know how to delegate. I know I struggled with that the first time I was a project architect. I had a lot of trust issues coming out of a really hard project I had because pretty much everybody let me down. They all quit. And I went from being a recent grad to a project manager on a project that the superintendent was the only one that would listen to me. I'd have the PM walk off the site. I would have to take any male person with me on site for anybody to listen to what I was saying. I'd bring a male intern and they listened to him more than me. And it was just everything bad happened. So I had a lot of trust issues after Mm -hmm. that project going into the next one. And so I held on to things and I found that's not just me. A lot of people transitioning into the project architect role have delegation and trust issues. And so teaching people how to delegate and there's actually levels of delegation. And so sometimes you do have to spoon feed somebody to get it, but then you should be able to move up the levels to be higher. So the higher you are in delegation, the more hands off you are. You're out of, you don't have control over it, but it frees up your time. If you spoon feed the whole time and micromanage doesn't actually save you time and you're going to get burned out. You need to work on the trust and how to delegate properly based on who you're working with. But the project I was on, I had younger professionals under me and I held on to things too long. And so I hindered the whole team because I didn't delegate early enough that they had time to fully go through it, design, figure out the details and all the different components. And so I handicapped my team and I feel bad for the young professionals that were on the job to get to that point because the set wasn't where it needed to be when it went out the door. So it was a lesson I learned that I know, okay, I have to learn how to delegate properly. I have to, if I have trust issues, I need to learn how to use delegation to build trust with somebody new on a project that I haven't worked with, learn what they don't understand, what they don't know, what they're coming from. So I can have that trust with them to continue on the project and be able to get to that higher level of delegation. So then we can spread the workload. I don't want to babysit somebody and sit next to them the whole time. That's not beneficial for either one of us, but I want to make sure we teach and coach them properly as well. And on the flip side, because that's more the, I call it the foundation to leadership course that I just launched last month, counters my build your foundation course. So a lot of the topics cross each other because I feel it's important for each one to kind of know what they're learning, but I don't really teach delegation to somebody right out of school. But I do teach them how to receive delegated work and how to organize it and how to ask for deadlines. I'm sorry, I have enough leaders telling me ASAP, I need this, and ASAP is not a deadline. So what's your expectation? Do you want it by the end of the day today? Or is ASAP by the end of the week would be fine? And what did you promise the owner? So giving the young professional authority to ask those questions So then it also helps build trust with the leader so they can get it done. But if it conflicts with another item, because oftentimes we work on multiple projects with different project managers giving you different direction, and you have to learn how to prioritize on your own. So I talk about how to prioritize tasks, what different stages are, so you don't over-design something in schematic design and then just have to redo it 10 times. Or if somebody says, okay, you're going to do all the interior elevations and you've never done them before. Okay, do four and go talk to them and get red lines on four. Don't do four sheets of interior elevations and ask for somebody to review it because you're going to mess it up. 
So just do a few and make them different, like a casework elevation, fabric panels, and a monitor. I don't know. Ones that are just completely different. And I would throw a bathroom one in there too, because they're their own <laughs> child to deal with. They are. But then you get to learn and they mm-hmm. can mark it up ahead of time. So then the set will get better and you're not having to do a bunch of work or somebody has to stay up all night trying to redline a set for markups for the next day. It can help both the leader and the young architect grow and learn. So there's faster ways we can teach and utilize the office hours that we have. And we don't need to work every evening and weekend to get something done. So it's those efficiencies with those two courses that I offer. And the Build Your Foundation course, I put that out the end of May. I was aiming for April, which was super ambitious because I left for my honeymoon like right at the beginning of May. So I was like, well, I'm just going to push this off. But I launched three courses at the end of May, and I don't think I'll ever launch three again. That was a lot. That is a lot. But that one, I wanted to create a bundle for young architects. So anybody starting in a firm or a firm that needs help onboarding, that can be so hard if somebody comes out of school and all they know is Rhino from trying to do big design work, and now they have to learn Revit. I primarily teach Revit since that's my wheelhouse. I have a Revit crash course. So it's only, I think, six hours long. So you could do it in a day. I usually recommend two or three. But Mm -hmm. imagine if you didn't know Revit, and I can walk you through the basics and highlight it. And by the end of the week of your first week, you could jump on a project and know where things are and be helpful. And then I have a BIM Well course. And that I blend together modeling, constructability, and codes. So doors are a great example. You can throw in a door anywhere. But if it will actually function right and be buildable is another. So we always keep doors four inches off a wall. So then it can actually swing how framing is done. So you need double studs for the actual framing for it to grip onto the door swing. If you have over 50 people, it should swing the other direction. And if it's in a corridor and gets rid of half of the width of the corridor, it should swing all the way or duck it in. So I talk about all that. So I'm like, here's how we're going to put in a door but here's, I'm going to talk about the occupancy and all these things that are happening. It's, I don't end up with a finished building, but I give people the knowledge to ask the questions. So then when they're modeling, they can say, hey, what's the code implication of this? Or, hey, this is a lot of people. And they can ask better questions and hopefully catch things easier because the younger staff are the ones modeling every day and in there. Sometimes the project architect can be stuck in meetings most of the time and they don't have time to get in for a while. So if you can ask more informed questions or know when to ask something, I also teach how to dimension. I oh my gosh, shocked how people don't know how to dimension. <laughs> yep. And it's like you end up with these dimensions that are like 57 and 160 fifths inch. And I'm like, I think the drywall guy is going to kill you for mm-hmm. one. Let's mm-hmm. like, here's a tape measure. You want to go draw a wall to that dimension or like measure it out and build something like let's get to simple scales Learning what to figure out with your company's standard, too. We talked about standards because some people dimension to wall face. Some people do to stud. And to a sub, they don't care. They just want you to be consistent. So you're not jumping in and out from both. Understanding if you dimension to a column grid line, are they going to actually see the column? Mm -hmm. Or are you not demoing it? So you could do to the column line if you want, but you should also dimension the existing And adding like plus and minus dimensions. I do a lot of interior fit out work. And so dealing with, hey, this is most likely not the exact same, even if we're given a Revit model, 
things can be very different than what was built in the field. So teaching them how to give dimensions and highlight the ones that are flexible and which ones are required, clear, hold, and have the more restrictions to it. So that's another example of like walking through that and making sure they dimension in an easy way. I know in Revit, it's all in a sequence that you can do it. And you should be able to do that in CAD too. I'm not as good in CAD. (laughs) I always get frustrated. But I've had young professionals dimension each little thing. So they're doing like three clicks per thing. And I'm like, oh, and then we move it. And then you have to move all of them. I end up usually just deleting all their dimensions and making them do it again. But it takes time. And if you can just teach it to begin with, then they can ask the questions up front to the project architect or project manager, and then they can run with it. And there's not that like middle ground of they think they're doing it right. And they may be afraid to ask questions because mm-hmm. so many students out of school are like, I just proved myself to a firm. I know all this information and I graduated top of my class. Then they get in, they're like, crap. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And they're afraid to ask questions. And so it's also teaching them. Nobody expects you to know anything when you Mm -hmm. graduate from school. So you can just play dumb and it's a great time and enjoy it and be annoying with the questions you ask. I know I even still learn from the questions the younger staff under me ask me because sometimes I didn't ask the question and I want to give them a answer to why something's done, but sometimes I didn't question it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to find out that answer to why we do that. And I didn't know, but I'm going to go do that for you. And so I still learn from the younger architects asking me questions. So anybody that works with me, I'm like, you better have at least five questions, like every (laughs) meeting, like nothing's perfect. Ask me questions, throw things in teams and I'll get to it as fast as I can. So There's always stuff, but that's a lot of what the courses do is breaking down those barriers and expectations that aren't given and giving people confidence to get through and hopefully grow the industry overall would be an awesome goal. Like I would love for firms to be more profitable on projects if they're not constantly having to redo work and counterbalancing things. I've never had a project get through a good QC Like you're always working towards a QC set, but then it's, okay, do they have time to review the whole set? Are you working towards it? No, because everybody works towards the actual deadline, which if I was project manager, I would tell everybody the QC deadline's the deadline Mm -hmm. and then be like, oh, just kidding. It's actually this deadline. Just so everybody has that frame of reference because it can panic people when they think they they had an extra month. Mm -hmm. But then finding the staff that has time to thoroughly review a full set of drawings is really hard to make sure somebody can get in and see all the sheets. Nobody ever has time to look at the specs to check that. But if we can change our process of growing, learning, and checking things as the drawing set's being developed, then the QC set won't take as long to go through because it'll be a better set. Mm-hmm. overall. And then you're managing your time reviewing it in smaller chunks and not like a giant project. I know I work on some pretty big projects that I've got over a hundred pages, just architecture. And I still have to go check all the MEP sheets to make sure they make sense for what I drew. So it's hard to get through all of them and make sure that they're all in good standing. I know if I do any side projects on my own, it's a little bit easier because I know everything I'm drawing. And it's more just having time to do all of it and hopefully not second guessing myself. I know I always second guess and I like having other people to ask questions to 
and have a gut check. I like calling it gut check. I used to call it, I have a really dumb question and I had enough people tell me there are no dumb questions, but that's how I got over that like question mindset on being mm-hmm. afraid to ask questions. So I was like, I know this is dumb, but what is this? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you answered every question I was going to ask. You always like <laughs> came to it and I'm like, okay, she's got that because you brought up so many great points. But I think what you've done really well is bridging between architecture school and the professional world. And creating a platform and a place to go where you can learn, like, how to dimension, where to dimension to, even just the simplest things that you would think, you know, someone would know coming out of school, but you don't know coming out of school because you probably didn't really have to dimension your plans for an actual subcontractor to build off of in school. And so you've really created this, yeah, this bridge that has, provides so much information. And I think it's it's really great. And I wish I had it when I was transitioning because... <laughs> There's a lot of, I think you hit a lot of points of, yeah, like you have to ask questions, especially about deadlines. I always would ask, okay, so when do you need this by? And then priority, that was something that I learned through lessons after, you know, getting kind of burned or just not burned, but, yeah. you know. You dropped the oh, ball on some things. The, and- <laughs> exactly. Didn't know that the client meeting was tomorrow and then all of a sudden you're staying late because you didn't know and you didn't ask that question. So I think, yeah, you've you've really created a helpful, helpful tool for anyone. And I love that you're you also provide tools for just any stage of the career that you're in, which I think is so powerful. Yeah. And the I call it my soft skills course. So the build your foundation and foundation to leadership course is also good for interior designers and engineers. I work in mm-hmm. an architecture and engineering firm and I love it. This is the first one I work for, but it's I'm helping mechanical engineers draft and it's just like, Hey, I can't see something. I'm like, okay, I don't know how to model all the ducks. I've done it for like random school projects to get the effect I needed, but I don't really know all their connection points, but I can talk them through modeling and the importance of modeling certain things over another or how to see something to get through it. So those courses go for those guys too. I give very similar advice to those professionals as well. So Interior designers, engineers, any of those are right up your alley. I don't, interior designers could probably take the Revit ones because I also help the interiors a lot more than MEP, but it's, I've noticed the more I talk about it, that other people are like, Hey, this would be really great for engineers to actually listen to. I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about it. Cause I'm like, Oh, well, I'm just an architect, but I have some really great engineering friends that they'll come to me and ask me how to respond to a question for an RFI. And I've done a lot of work in CA. So getting that wording right, because it's a different language. Then while I even talk about the CA process, because I found young architect or young professionals out of school don't know what an RFI stands for. And so that's a request for information. And it's a question to you. You have to figure out if the question is literally for the architect or somebody else on your team that you got to go pass that on to get a response or if multiple people need to look at it to answer any questions the contractor has about the drawings themselves. So I even dive into that just to help people get used to that. Or I always have to talk to people in my office on the different designations on when you return things, if it's rejected. My company doesn't have to revise and resubmit. And that's what I grew up on. So I'm like, ah, I don't have that one because I don't like being mean. I really value having really good superintendents and contractors and having a good relationship with them. I've had really sour ones and it makes the whole thing extremely painful. 
when you can have a good relationship. I've gotten drinks with contractors like after the day and just catching up. We're here as a team. And so you may always be thinking of the design team and representing the owner, which is what we do. But the contractor is part of that conversation and teaching people how to build trust, even with people externally. So then they can have a smooth process because a lot of architects don't like the CA phase because we're not trained and fires happen and you got to do a fire drill and figure out what's going on and think on your feet. And when you can have a conversation with a contractor in the field on an issue and just say, okay, here's the design intent on what we need. I understand we can't do what's in my drawings. How would you approach it? Because you can understand their angle and perception to achieve a similar thing. So as long as in the end it meets the design intent, then we're great. If we can't meet the design intent, then okay, bring in the owner and let's see what they're okay with accepting. But at least you can come together as a team. The worst thing is when you're not a team and then they just people start pointing fingers and that was the architect's fault and all this stuff. But if you can come together with solutions, it's always better for the owner. So oh, for sure. Yeah. So I teach a lot of that too, just relationships even outside of architecture. You've really taken what you were lacking in your education, like the psychology. I know you have a business minor, but a lot of everything that you were lacking in your education has really come through in your program, your mentorship, your training program. So that that's really great to see. Yeah, it was a lot of challenges starting my career that I had to deal with that shouldn't have been challenges. And mm -hmm. I learned a lot through that process. I would go get drinks with some mentors in the office and I was having challenging times. Like I was drinking a lot during that time just to like <laughs> keep my cool and stay positive as much as I could while also studying for the ARES. And the one guy who had always told me I am learning five years of experience in one year. And I would just be so angry with him about that statement because I almost left the profession. That job was so horrible. And they kept me. Those two mentors I would get drinks with all the time. They were more senior. And I still talk to both of them. They mean a lot to me. And they really kept me in the profession. And that's when I started blogging because I'm like, I want to talk about things and talk about the Aries at the time and give people tips and tricks on how to do it. And it's not till I was years after, even after I left that firm, because I was so burnt out, that I really started to understand what they were telling me at the time. Because I can see other people the same year of experience as me have very different skill levels in what they've experienced, what they've dealt with, what they can handle and do. So I noticed it from that sense. But just what I can do now for the firm and how I can react to things on the fly and do things pretty easily. And it wasn't until I, I listened to the Happiness Lab podcast. Uh, it's run by a psychologist up at Yale University that I actually did one of their projects. So that's how I met her originally. But in one of her podcasts, she talks about PTSD, but also post-traumatic growth. So the opposite. So I was like, that's what it was. And it was like a light bulb. And I'm like, that's what I experienced. Like it was traumatic, but I grew so much. Like that project is a four minute drive from my house right now. And I haven't gone into that building since the ribbon cutting. And I 
honestly avoid the road it's on. Wow. And so that's going to be one of my goals this fall is to go back there, take some videos over there and talk to people about how traumatizing it can be and how valuable positive mentors can be to the profession to not only keep people in the profession, but help them grow along the way and be that support system. No project's perfect. You're going to have your worst project and your best project on your list, but trying to get that worst project a little bit higher and closer to the best is always ideal. So just trying to teach those values too to those senior leaders that if you can be positive and be able to train and coach properly, how much of an impact you can have on individuals and the profession as the whole. So nobody's frantically leaving all the time because they're so stressed and burned out because they didn't have the support they needed. Well, Caitlin, this has been such a great conversation. I have really enjoyed listening to your perspective, your experience, and like the inspiration that came behind your training program. So Thank you so much for coming on from the Honeycomb podcast. I know this episode will be really beneficial for really anybody in any part of their career in architecture, <laughs> even if they're listening and are thinking about going to architecture school. I think you've really beautifully helped and touched every every chapter of an architect's journey. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And where can listeners find you? You can find me all over the place. Um, I always joke that like my... 2019 blogging self would have a heart attack if they saw how much I was doing right now. So you can always go on to mentordino.com. There's the blog section and the course section. I also post resources on there as well. I have an equity report for the Pittsburgh area if you're local to Pittsburgh. I also have ARE resources. So there's a lot on there that you can take a look at. I am also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook's just kind of a general post. Instagram, I'm having a lot of fun with um, and getting used to doing reels of myself. It's, I don't know about you, but I feel really weird like taking videos of myself. So I'm weird. getting practice. But LinkedIn as well, it's a great resource and take a look there. But pretty much similar content on both. So you can find me in both locations and see where I'm going, getting around to where I'm speaking. And I'm actually setting up presentations. So if any firms are interested in having a little discussion and learning about the re return on investment on my training courses and training soft skills to your staff. Those should be ready probably by the time this podcast is launched. So you can always reach out to me in my about me page and send me a note and we can always set up a virtual presentation to your staff and you can always email me there too. Oh, great. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Katarina. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of From the Honeycomb Podcast. I would love if you left a review and rated the episode. You can click the follow button so you can stay up to date on the latest episodes. You can follow me on Instagram at From the Honeycomb Podcast. You can also support the podcast through the patron link in the show notes. Your support makes more of From the Honeycomb Podcast episodes possible. There's also my monthly newsletter, which you can subscribe to, that comes out once a month where I share a personal message with you, also some intellectual architecture articles, a Vastu Shastra tip of the month, and we also have a book month. So that comes out every seventh of the month. Thank you so much and see you next Friday.